podcast is brought to you by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training. For more, check out our website at adst.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Warts and All. In 1979, the Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, fled the capital on his way to a life of exile. He had ruled Iran as a U.S.-backed monarch since 1941, but was overthrown by nationalist and religious revolutionaries led by the prominent Shiite Muslim cleric Ruhollah Khomeini. When the Shah was eventually granted medical asylum in the United States later that year, anti-American sentiments in the new Islamic Republic erupted and culminated in an assault on the U.S. Embassy in Tehran on November 4, 1979. Student protesters broke into the embassy compound and took as hostages 52 U.S. diplomatic personnel. With support from Khomeini's new government, the protesters and Iranian Revolutionary Guards scoured the country for any remaining American personnel. Kathleen Stafford and a small group of other embassy employees escaped the takeover and were hidden by Canadian diplomats for nearly three months until a CIA extraction operation led by Agent Tony Mendez smuggled them out of the country in January of 1980. The story of that operation has since been turned into the movie Argo. Stafford, who was working as a visa clerk at the time of the attack, was interviewed by Marilyn Green in November 2012 and recounted her story. So we'll start from the beginning. So we had been there for, we had been in Iran for two months. We had arrived in September. So Cora and I were there working on the visa line because there were 40,000 people waiting for their visa interviews because every person had to be interviewed. Now we arrived there in September and we knew that the embassy had already been uh, taken over the previous February, but only for a few hours. And so the, the State Department's idea was that all of those people that had been there, who were who the Iranians might consider tainted by their by our relationship with the Shah, were leaving. So there were a whole lot of new people, and so we were some of those new people. So we had been we were in working in the embassy, and um, that particular day was the first of the week, the day before the embassy had been closed, um, and there. The people had come by and written things on the wall, death to America, death to Jimmy Carter. And so Bruce Langan and Vic Thompson and Mike Howland went over to the foreign ministry to complain. Now something that led to my, um, one of the things that had to go right for all of us to get out safely was that it was supposed to be Anne Swift who accompanied Bruce Langan to the foreign ministry, but she was late. And so she stayed, she was there at the embassy, and so that's why Vic Thompson ended up going with Bruce Langan to the foreign ministry. And they, they, as they pulled out of the, uh, as they left the embassy, they saw Anne Swift going in. So, so they all went over to complain about lack of protection for the embassy and lack of, you know, no people being allowed to write on our walls and do these things. So in addition, the consulate was closed to visa applicants to protest this lack of security offered by the Iranian government. So we were closed and we were all doing regular sort of paperwork since we weren't interviewing that day. And at about 10 o'clock or so, as I recall, um, we heard that there were people running around on the compound. There were people running around with sticks and rocks and things. And so somebody yelled, shut the door. But Don Cook was outside. He was getting his croissants or something. And so as soon as he ran in, I shut the door. I remember shutting the door. <laughs> And then we sort of waited for things to settle down, 
and it didn't look like they were going to settle down. More and more people kept coming onto the compound from the little bit we could see. And so someone said, go upstairs, because that would be one level up and quieter. And the only people that were in the consulate that day, other than the regular American employees and our local staff, were some uh, people applying for immigrant visas for their husbands or wives or things like things of that nature. There, so there might have been, I really don't remember how many people, it might have been 20, 15, something like that. So I was quite sure that nothing would happen because this embassy had just been reinforced with bulletproof glass everywhere and I don't know how much money, maybe $2 million, which was a lot back then, <laughs> to make it, you know, safe. And so I was saying, no, it's going to be okay. And I think Mark Lijek or someone, probably someone else, maybe Bob Moorfield, our consul general, called the police and said, you know, we're having trouble here. You need to send somebody over. And I think they just hung up on us. Mm -hmm. So after about an hour or so, the, the uh, local staff were looking very nervous. They were crying. Some of them took off their ID cards and tossed them behind the file cabinets because they knew it would take a long time before anybody found that. And so I thought, boy, these people are really worried. And at a certain point, Al Goloshinsky came over from the, from the chancery. And he was walking back and forth and trying to figure out what to do with us. And the Marine was on the radio to Al Goloshinsky as the RSO. And so I can remember all this sort of pandemonium. And at a certain point, they said, well, we have to, tear, we have to destroy the visa plates because we're going to have to close this up. We don't want the, the visa plates compromised. We don't want people making false documents and getting into the country with their false visas. So we thought, oh boy, that means, you know, we're not going to be doing any work for a while, since that was our job, was to vis have visa applicants say, Cora and I are thinking, now they're going to send us home. <laughs> <laughs> so after that was done, then I think at one point they were saying we were going to walk across the, the chancery, this huge chancery, I mean this huge compound over to the chancery, the main building where the ambassador's office is and everything. And so we thought, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But somebody got the data book and they asked me to carry that over, and then they said, no, we're not going. And so then we thought we should just go out the back door where the visa applicants always come in because at this point, this was only a takeover by the students and nobody else was in on it. So the local revolutionary guards, who were usually posted outside our door and they were armed, they weren't in on this takeover. So they were just standing there doing their job. And we started, we decided to go out in groups. So first, all these Iranians who were there for their, for their, uh, immigrant visas went out first. And then at a certain point, I think there were we were going to split into groups, and there were about five or six, um, Bob Moorfield, Richard Queen, Don Cook, uh, Sergeant Lopez, who had torn off all his insignia. And before all this happened, somebody had thrown something into the bathroom window, and Sergeant Lopez, I don't remember if he tossed it back or... Anyway, there was quite a, a little scuffle, that was another sign that things were not going to get better. And also somebody said they thought the roof was on fire, which was why we decided we had to go. So, um, so anyway, the, these people left, and we were basically, you know, just a few, maybe 20 feet from each other. And I think they went to the left, and we went to the right. And the plan was to go to the British Embassy. So as we're making our way there, we see there's this huge mob of people coming from that direction, and we know we're not going to make it through there. And it started raining, so that might have helped too, because we had umbrellas out, and we might not have been so noticeable. And, you know, the idea that it was raining, it hadn't rained in a while, I think, mm -hmm. so that was helpful. So um, I don't remember exactly how it happened, like what, what all the 
different steps were, but we realized we were not going to make it to the British Embassy, and Bob Ander said, I think I'll go home, and I live close by. Do you want to come with me? And we had been there two months, and we knew nobody but a few Iranians who we could not possibly ask for help. So we said, we're going with you, Bob. <laughs> so we, we started a, you know, going over toward his house, and we broke up a little bit to not be such a noticeable group, and were, there was one uh, roadblock sort of place that we had to walk by, so we tried to go two at a time. And we got to Bob's house. And um, then we called the British Embassy to see who else had, you know, who'd made it. And there was only one local employee who was hysterical, really. And he was, could hardly talk. So then we started calling around to the different places. There was an apartment building where some of the Marines and TDYers stayed. And we reached Lillian Johnson, who was in there. She was supposed to have gone out that day, and there was some complication at the airport with her visa. So she had been brought back, and she was in these apartments. And they were a high-rise, and she was looking down on the compound, and she could see that things were not good. She could also hear people coming into the building. And so she was just trying to stay out of sight. Then we called Kate Cobe and the other fellow that worked with her at the uh, USIS office at the, the cultural center, which had not been attacked in February. So Kate was thinking, well, they're not, you know, we're not considered part of the embassy. Nobody's going to bother us. So we're just fine. So she and this other fellow, whose name I've forgotten, stayed there, and they opened a line to Washington, and they were talking to people in Washington. So then I think, I don't know if we were able to reach anyone else. We were hearing on the, on the radio, you know, everybody had a radio in their house. We could hear that the Iranians, the students, whoever, had gotten to the, up to the safe and to the, to the vault, you know, and to the, to the classified area, and we could hear that they had gotten in, and we, we knew that was bad. And so, um, so we were there at the Anders house for a while, and then there was a young woman with us who needed to, who had been trying to get an, an, uh, an immigrant visa for her husband, and she was afraid that he would get, lose his temper and go over there and get in trouble, so she was trying to call him. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she did reach the family, and when she said she was staying with some Americans, the line died, you know, the phone died. And it had been a party line, you know, people in the apartment were all using it. So that was, we thought, oh, that's great. So I think she was finally able to reach him, and he came to pick her up. And then he came back, they both came back later and brought us chicken kebab or something, since we didn't have any food. And then Kate Cope came back and said, could somebody come over, if I send my driver, can somebody come over and keep this line open in, uh, to Washington? Because back in those days, if you lost the line, you couldn't necessarily get it back. So Joe and I and the Lijics went over. Bob stayed, stayed there at his house. And we figured four was enough. That was enough people. So we went over, to, and we stayed on the phone all night. Not that we could tell them anything. But I can't remember if, if at that point we were talking to Vic Thompson and Bruce Langan over in the foreign ministry. Because at that point, it really wasn't a problem. We were able to talk to them. And the key about having Vic there with Bruce Langan instead of Aunt and Swift is that Vic had brought his Thai cook with him and his Thai cook named Sam and Sam had the keys to four different families homes he was cooking for them and so so then at that let's see then we Kate and this other fellow took a nap and then when they woke up in the morning they said we're fine now we can take over again now all along we're thinking you know this isn't really going like it did back in February they're not freeing our people at the embassy and it was it wasn't looking good so we thought we better get some clothes and some money so we 
Kate gave us her driver, and we went to the Lijic's house, and they got some money and some clothes, and then we went to our house. And um, our landlord came downstairs and said, can we do anything for you? Can we help? And we said, no, thank you very much. And uh, some, a Kurd some Kurdish friends came over, too, and asked if they could help. And we said, no, you better throw away our phone number. You know, we'll get out of this, but you could, be, you could have problems. So people were really great. So I called my mother and said, you know, I'll be home. Uh, well, I didn't say that. I said, There's, you'll hear things on the news, and uh, I'm fine, and I'll call you in a couple of days. But then, of course, I didn't ever call her again for 90 days till I was back. I saw her back in Washington before I ever talked to her again. So um, then we, I think we spent the night there. But at that point, I think we were still calling back and forth to Vic Thompson, who's stuck in, this, in the foreign ministry. And they said, you know, you can go back, but we won't guarantee your safety. And I think at some point I have read that Al Goloshinsky had told Bruce when he was heading back, don't come back because it's not safe for you to come on here, go back to the foreign ministry. So Bruce was going back there trying to get someone at the foreign ministry to go in and have the students leave and um, free, all the, free all the embassy people. So at a certain point we decided it was time to go to one of these other people's houses because our apartment was very close to the, to the embassy. And so Sam met us. I don't remember if it was Kate's car or someone else's car, took us to John Graves' house, because we had those keys. And um, he was an American. Yes, he was, he was the, I think he was the public affairs officer. <coughs> was, no, that's not right. He was doing something else. I don't know what he did, because Kate was the public affairs person. Maybe he worked with Kate. Whatever he did, we went to his house. and. Um, Sam was there, and I think we gave Sam some money, and he went out and bought some food, and we closed all the windows, and um, I think that's when we played Scrabble or we played Bridge or something, trying to kill time. And drank wine. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's later. <laughs> so, and the funny thing was, I think the only thing in John Graves' house was this, uh, this video of the Shaw's you know, crowning down in Persepolis, which was <laughs> so appropriate for the moment. So then, uh, so then I think, I don't remember why we changed houses again, but I think we went to another house. Usually what happened was people got nervous, and there were, there were sort of neighborhood guards, and we were afraid Sam would come in and say, they know you're here, we have to move. So at one of these t points, we moved, we, late at night, you know, we walked through the backyards to another house. And at another point, we went to the British Embassy. They said we could come over there. So I can't remember if they sent their driver. At that point, uh, it wasn't long after we were in these houses that Cape Cove got picked up. And Lillian Johnson had also been picked up and brought over to, the, to, to Kate's office. And they were both picked up. And they were taken back to the embassy and with the other hostages. Picked up by the Pick, Iranians. By the students. Yes, by the students, by the Iranians. <coughs> so... When we went to the Brits, I think maybe their residential compound was attacked, something like that. But they, they said it wouldn't be safe for us to stay there, that we should leave. We'd already given Sam money for food. And by this point, we have almost no food. And I think we kept leaving our clothes in the washing machines as we're leaving these houses. So we had, like, no clothes left. Not that we had many in the first place. We weren't planning on this being long term. <laughs> At what point did, um, I mean, in the beginning it seemed like a student protest. Mm -hmm. And was there a point where everyone realized that it was, it was more serious than just a, a casual 
protest? I don't know which day it was. It seems to me it was three days after the takeover that the Bazargan government fell. They withdrew, which meant there was no longer a secular head of the government. And so then we knew we were in, in difficulty because there was nobody for our people to talk to, except for Khomeini's people. So um, I, don't, I think that was the second or third day, but that's when we knew that things were bad. So then after the, um, the Brits said we should, we should leave for our safety, we went back to, I think it was Kate Cobb's house, but she had a large picture window and so we couldn't really walk by, we couldn't move around the house because people could see in. And you know, we all we became, started becoming very nervous because everybody knew that these were the Americans' houses, everybody knew in the neighborhood. And we thought eventually they're going to go to the admin office and find the list of housing, you know, find the addresses, and they're gonna come and check all these houses. So that's when Bob mm -hmm. Anders called John Sheardown. He said, I know this guy, I played tennis with John Sheardown, and he has four bedrooms, he has enough room for all of us. What was John's position? He was the Consul General for the Canadian mm -hmm. Embassy. Okay. And uh, Bob Anders was the Consular Officer for American Services, so they were sort of okay. counterparts. Okay. Um, you, you said that, well, the Sheardowns weren't mentioned in the movie. That's they? right. And you, you thought that was yes. unfair. And it's been, it's been a trend all along, with, ever since we all came back. Mm -hmm. they, were, they never received the... the uh, Acknowledgement that they should have. They finally, they were by their, I shouldn't say finally, they were by the Canadian government. They uh -huh. were awarded their special uh, highest award. Mm -hmm. But um, as far as the press was concerned, you know, all of us would do, every time we would do interviews to anyone, we would talk about the Sheardowns and Rod, Roger Lucy, who was the young junior officer who was there. And it just never got in the paper. Mm -hmm. People wanted to write about the intrepid Ken Taylor as the ambassador, and, uh, and he was protecting the CIA and protecting the other hostages by not talking about the CIA's role in getting us out because as far as the students would always say on television, this is a den of spies. We don't mm -hmm. find any evidence that they were diplomats, they were all spies. So if anybody had known that the CIA helped get us out, that would have just confirmed everything. But uh, it was frustrating when we would always try to recognize the sheer downs, and I'm, I'm sure especially for Mark and Cora and Bob Anders and Lee Schatz, who stayed with them in their home for three months, that you know you never could, they would never receive the acknowledgement they deserved. So where were we? Um, you you had um, just moved yet again to um, to get away All from right. the American housing. All right. So when we called John Sheardown, he said, "We've been worried about you. Why didn't you call sooner?" And so he said, "Of course you can come over." So I think the Brits then came over to the house because they knew where we were and they brought us over to John Sheardown's house. And I will never forget him standing out on the sidewalk with his hose, washing, you know, watering the sidewalk with his garage door open so that the car could just pull in and nobody in the neighborhood would see us get out. And uh, you see I wear these scarves. And Mark had blonde hair, so I think he was wearing one of my scarves. And Bob Anders had one on to, over them, yeah, to hide their hair so that people looking in the car wouldn't. You know, recognize. Is this a very scarf no, you no. wear? No, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what I did with those scarves. <laughs> uh, so, so they closed the garage and you... That's right, so they closed the garage and we go in and we're sitting with the shear downs and of course at this point we're sort of nervous about, I hope this is really it and we get to stay here because we felt safe, you know, in, in an official residence, another diplomat's home. 
So I think it was Mark said, you know, does your ambassador know about this? <laughs> and he said, there he is. <laughs> and, and here's this fellow that had driven up in this little two-seater sports car, and he had on jeans, and he had curly hair, and we thought he was a junior officer. And so that's Ambassador Taylor. So, he, you know, he said, yes, and we're happy, you know, we're happy to, that you got out and that you're safe. And he said, um, I'd like two people to come with me because he wanted it to be official. And, you know, his residents would have much more prestige or, or it would be difficult for the Iranians to come and take somebody out of his house and not have it be a big deal, a bigger deal than just coming to John Sheardown's house. So Joe and I don't play bridge. So I, so we went over and stayed with Ken so the others could still play bridge and things like that. So, so for the so next... So you weren't th all together as it no, appeared. No, no, right. But they said that part of the part of the reason they in the movie they didn't do that was besides the cost of two more actors and another setting was that it would dilute the drama. So, but the movie's really about Tony Mendez in the first place. So it's mm -hmm. so the Canadians really get very little credit for yeah. all the things they did. But Ken Taylor did um, was doing other things besides uh, protecting us. He was going back regularly to see uh, Bruce Bruce Langan and. Um, Mike Holland and uh, and Vic back in the foreign ministry, and he would go and talk to them and bring back messages that he would take to Washington, you know. And so I, did, I knew he was doing that, but I did not know until I read his book that he was also collecting information about what was going on around the embassy and who was there and who's at this door in case there was a rescue attempt. So he didn't ever mention that. But that explains why when he would come home at night, you know, we're sitting there at the, on the couch, every day when he comes home, waiting for the news. And so he would kind of choose his words carefully, and I thought, well, can't you just tell us what's going on? But he would, you know, I'm sure he was being careful about what he, what we needed to know mm -hmm. and what we didn't need mm -hmm. to know in case something happened mm -hmm. or got picked up sometime. So, so, um, so that's what happened. We stayed with them for, we were there till, every day on the, at, when we were there at their house, their television worked and they had the newspapers. So when they brought us over, um, everybody thought this was short term. So Pat had introduced, had told the staff, there was the cook, and uh, I don't remember his name, but he was a member of the local comité, we found out later. And there was Guna Sealand, who I think was maybe from India or some other uh, South Asian country. And um, they, they were the two housekeepers, the housekeeper and the cook. And so they were told that we were friends of Ken's, and we'd come to visit. So it was kind of awkward after a while because I thought, well, then we shouldn't speak Farsi. Then after a while we did. And then, um, and you know, I'm sure they were thinking, well, who are, these are funny tourists. They come here and they hide when somebody comes upstairs and they don't have any clothes and they, uh, they never go out. <laughs> so it was, never it was never really clarified, you know, just what we were doing there. Nobody ever spelled it out. But after a while, the cook is the person that Joe would ask for definitions of words, you know, when he would be reading the paper and ask him, what does this mean, and what does that mean? And in the end, that cook did come to Canada and told Zena Sheardown that he had been brought in afterwards and they had beaten his, the bottoms of his feet and, you know, and tortured him a bit in mm -hmm. different ways, but he was able to leave and go to Canada. I don't know who provided the funds and the visa and everything for him to get out, but I was very happy to hear he got out because we never knew. So in the movie, the, they have Sahar, Sahar, which is uh, the lady, right. and uh, the, 
the housekeeper that worked for the Sheardowns was a Filipina, and so they either took her with them or they sent her. You know, she was able to go to the Philippines, so she was safe. Mm -hmm. But um, I was happy they had that part of the movie because it does show how brave and loyal the Iranians were, and you know, it's nice that they are represented that way. <coughs> the Swedish were involved in some yes. way, were they not? What was that? What was their role? Yes, um, Lischatz was the was the agricultural attaché, mm -hmm. and his office was in this same building as the Swedish embassy. Mm -hmm. So when he he was up higher, and he could see down into the compound, so he saw all this takeover happening, and um, he stayed for the first few days, I think four or five days at least, with, uh, I don't know if she was an officer or a secretary, but she said, you can stay with me, you know, so he stayed in her apartment. And then the Swedish ambassador approached Ken Taylor and said, you know, we've got this American we're hiding, but he really wouldn't blend in that well with us. Can you take him? And he said, Ken said, sure, he can come along with the other five. I think that's the first that the Swedish ambassador knew that anybody was, you know, that the rest of us were hiding mm -hmm. with the Canadians. And they were very helpful. So were the, uh, so were the New Zealanders. They were they were helpful all, all along. And they would I think they helped Ken uh, visiting the foreign ministry. And I know they were at the Sheardowns on a regular basis. Very um, casuals, you know. He called Chris Beebe Chris, and he would drive himself around. And wonderful people. But we never we didn't want to talk about that much either because New Zealand still had an embassy in Iran, and we didn't want them to get into any have any problems. How long did Bruce Langen stay with, at the foreign ministry? 444 oh, days. the whole time. That's right. In, in the ballroom. <laughs> the three of them. Um, what has your subsequent relationship with Tony Mendez been like? I had not seen Tony until I saw him at the Canadian Embassy from the day I got off the plane. I had not seen him. Because there, there were Every five years or so, there would be reunions for the other people. But Joe and I have always been on the other side of the Atlantic or someplace. Or the, the last time they had, I think it was just, we must have been packing to go to Nigeria. And I think that was that they were, they had their uh, annual meeting, but it was exactly the same day that the Packers came, and I can't leave the Packers to themselves. So I didn't get to go. But we would just look at the pictures and read the emails and send pictures back and forth sometimes. And when Mrs. Dollimore died, one of the secretaries, Laverne Dollimore, who was had a world she was a World War II veteran and she was buried at sea. So they sent us the pictures and, you know, everything. So we've kept up people with people that mm -hmm. way, but not but it, not But you said you way. saw him at the Canadian embassy. Was that for the premiere for, for the premiere oh, okay. of the movie, yes. So okay. I hadn't seen him in thirty three years. All right. Now what was that like? That was great. It's wonderful. <laughs> And uh, he's just as quiet as ever, you know. He d he he doesn't uh, draw attention to himself. So, what was the the feeling? Um, do you think the the hostages at the embassy resented you six for leaving? Well, you know, I couldn't paint for a year after I got out, and it didn't occur to me until maybe about ten years ago that that must have been survivor guilt. Everything mm -hmm. I'd paint, I'd ruin. And so then I would have these dreams that we were on that same plane when we, when we, you know, in the movie when we're leaving, and they would be on the plane, but they wouldn't talk to me. Mm -hmm. So um, when we got out, Sheldon Chris knew how important it was for us to be able to see the other hostages. And so he br they brought us back from Palermo so that we could be there and see the others and have them tell us we were happy you got out. And the way they found out that we got out, since everything they received was censored, 
They never had any they never had access to the Red Cross or anything. No one was really allowed to visit them. They never had any news. They thought they were forgotten. And so the uh, there was a baseball game between the New York Yankees and the Montreal Bluebirds, Pinkbirds, Yellowbirds, something like that, the baseball team. And so um, that was in Sports Illustrated. And it showed our picture and it said that, you know, we had said these were the people who escaped with the Canadians and we'd said don't forget the other hostages and things like that. So they, the students had not censored that because they weren't thinking it would be in a, in a sports magazine. So they told us later that they they saw that magazine and passed it all around. Oh, that's, so everybody right. could see it. that's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, how, if at all, does the film promote understanding of international diplomacy? Was it useful in, in helping people understand that? Well, other people in the State Department have told me that they are very happy to see the State Department presented in a positive light, mm -hmm. as opposed to just having cocktail parties or giving visas to the wrong people or things like that. So that's very heartening. And Tony Mendez, I'm sorry, um, Ben Affleck, in his presentation at the premiere, and at, at other times has commented that this is an homage to the Foreign Service and to the clandestine officers in the CIA and the difficult life they lead. And he talks about, you know, when Tony Mendez is thinking about going and he takes off his wedding ring and leaves it there. And, you know, these people go out and they can't tell their families where they're going. And nobody can know what they're doing. And uh, my brother and sister-in-law saw the movie in New York. And they said at the end of the movie when they say that none of the people left the Foreign Service, that everybody gasps. They can't believe that, you know, we all stayed Stick in. around. Right. And so I think that is a very positive thing. Um, I think it would be nice if the Canadians had gotten more play in the movie. But, you know, I understand, you know, they're, uh, apparently the reasoning was that they wanted to, you know, the movie is about Tony Mendez. And so they didn't want to dilute it and, and you know, share it among too many people because that would take away from the storyline or something. But I do think, I'm glad at the end, you know, that at the, before, the first time the movie was shown in Toronto, uh, Ken Taylor was not invited, and his friends, Ken's friends, saw the movie. And so they complained to Ben Affleck and said, you know, and besides that, there was a, there was a little tagline or something at the end of the movie saying that, that uh, Ambassador Taylor received over a thousand awards and recognition for his role. And so it was kind of like, well, he didn't deserve them, and here he received all these awards. And so they changed that. They, um, ben Affleck invited Ken to, I mean, uh, yeah, Ken and Pat to Los Angeles, and they watched the movie, and they said, what do you think? And they said, well, we could change this to say that this is a fine example of cooperation, that the, that the, that the CIA assisted the Canadians mm -hmm. in, you know, in uh, say, rescuing the Americans, and it's a fine example of international cooperation. And you know, every place I have lived, the Canadians have been fantastic about any kind of help. And um, Rwanda is another example. Their representative at the UN, I'm sure, saved many lives and was almost acted single-handedly. And I remember watching television when Katrina happened and the Canadians were ready, their military, their Navy was ready to come down. They were just waiting for the news to come down and help. I think they've always been fantastic. So I wish the movie gave them a little more mm -hmm. credit, but at least they get, you know, I think apparently the Canadians are happy with part of it, you know, being shown that they did, they did hide us and they did were no, so courageous. They did no damage, there was no damage.
Kathleen Stafford remained involved in the Foreign Service while pursuing a career as an artist, and her husband Joseph spent time as a senior Foreign Service official in Khartoum, Sudan. Eventually, all the hostages were released by the end of January 1981. The music for this podcast was provided by Carol Schmeidberger, licensed under Creative Commons. ADST is an independent nonprofit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. ADST's oral history collection, begun in 1986, contains over 2,500 oral histories, unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and the absurd events that help shape foreign policy. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to allow ADST to continue its work at www.adst.org. Thanks for listening.